Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt, and I'm here with Joel Myers. We're in the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. It is February 19th, 2015, and we always start all our wine interviews with the same question, and that is, why wine? Why wine? Why wine? <laughs> why, why am I doing this? Sure. I just ended up here, basically. <laughs> how did you, cho- how did you, uh, how did you choose this to be in the career? industry? Yeah. Um, this was a part-time job that started 35 years ago, so, um, <laughs> really. So. Um, so about your specific career path, we know you started working uh, as a vineyard worker. And yeah. You got into vineyard management. So how did yeah. that, how did that work? How did you start it's vineyard? It's kind of a long that? story. So but that's what we're here for. a long story, yeah. So, um, you we're just going to do the story. That's what we're here for. Okay. Let's just jump in then. Okay. So... Uh, Dave Lett is an old family friend, and I hadn't seen him in a while. And uh, well, you want to go back to the beginning of the beginning? Is that what you want to do? Okay. So um, I was raised in, in uh, my dad got a job in Sacramento, California after he got out of college. So we moved to Sacramento in 1960 or 61. And the guys that lived across the street was Chuck Corey. And his kid was the same age as me. We went to kindergarten together. It's Charlie. And so um, that's how I met the Corys. They were neighbors. And uh, he went to school with Dave Lett. And that's where I met Dave Lett and another guy, Werner Koblet, who would later come back into my life. He was a master's student from Switzerland. So that's how I met the, those people, the people that formed, basically they ended up uh, forming the Oregon wine industry. And so, um, in a couple of years, I'm going to say Charlie and I went to school, uh, kindergarten, first grade, maybe part of second grade. And then they moved to Europe. They moved to France. And then they came back. And um, right after that, uh, they moved to Oregon. And then Dave moved to Oregon. Um, and then we ended up moving to Oregon. Uh, Dad got a job with the state of Oregon, the Water Resources Board. And so we moved to Silverton, which is where Dave Lett lived. And Corey's lived in Forest Grove by then. And they'd planted their grapes. Um, And so uh, Dave, we had a little farm, and Dave lived in town and and commuted over to Dundee. And so when when I was about 10, me and my brother and I helped plant Dave's vineyard. We'd work on, I mean, we were just kids, but we'd help to do some stuff in his vineyard when we were really young. And so we, we'd see him uh, periodically as, as family friends. And then Corey's, we would visit them oh, three or four times a year over at their place in Forest Grove um, throughout our, our growing up. And uh, their vineyard that they had over on, on Reuters Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's to the start of their winery there, we knew them. And, and uh, Brad was the older brother, Charlie was my age. Um, until they ended that business in 1978. And Charlie and I, 
Charlie left after high school. We got out of high school in 74, and he went to Europe. He went to France to study, or to work. He was a stagiaire in the, in the Jura uh, for um, a grower there. Um, and he stayed for two years. And so when he finished that in 1976, I left college and went over there to, um, to run around basically. <laughs> and so we had, uh, we had a letter from, uh, from Werner Koblet that was like this carte blanche to get into, it was like, a, so re Werner was a researcher in Vadensville, Switzerland. And so we had this letter. I met Charlie in Germany in, in uh, Rudesheim, which is near Geisenheim, is a research station there. Mm -hmm. And so um, we got to, we just take the letter in and, and give it to the, we went to see Dr. Becker there. He was re head, re head of the research station in, um, in Geisenheim. And we spent a week there and we went to see all the research at the viticulture station in Geisenheim. And then we went to, um, we went to another place in, in Yugoslavia, actually, in Zagreb, where there was another guy, and he showed us all around there. Um, and then another winery in, on the coast in Yugoslavia. So we could just go to these different places in, in Europe and uh, visit these research. So we did that for three months, just going to different vineyards and wineries in, in, uh, in Europe in 1976, <laughs> visiting. So anyhow, when Charlie came back, uh, he worked at the winery for a while, and I, I went back. I was a, worked in general agriculture in, in the valley. Then I went to school and finished school um, at U of O. Uh, so I was done with school, and then I was going to go to graduate school, and I was kind of in between things, and my folks said there's a picnic in the summer, and Cooies are going to be there, and uh, Letts are going to be there, and Koblitz were here from Switzerland. And I thought, well, that'd be great. I should... Uh, should go to this picnic, but I was kind of in between things. I was trying to actually make uh, an, enough money to go to graduate school. So at this picnic, Dave goes, well, you should, uh, why don't you come and help me out for a little while? You're not doing anything. <laughs> and so I thought he was thinking, you know, a couple of weeks or something. And he was thinking, you know, a couple of months. It was in July of 1980. And uh, I thought, well, okay. I'll come over there, and that was August. You know, so I started working for him in August of 1980. Um, and when I got over there, the, I, there was a lot of work to do. And so then he said, "Well, really, I'm thinking you should stay through harvest." So I did, and uh, and then after harvest, um, he said, "Well, he said, why don't you stay? Why don't you stay?" And I said, "Well, I'm really kind of need to go, you know." And he said, "No, you should stay." And, <laughs> Um, so, um, I did. I stayed, and a couple months later, I, I, my, my, I met my wife. So that was, I didn't. She was actually working for the Lett family, um, and we got married in June. So that was that was it. And he had a reason to stick around. He had the reason to stick around. Yeah. So what was she? What was she doing? She was a, a an artist, and she she worked with. Uh, the Lett kids, um, special needs kids, and so she worked with Jim Lett on a special education program at the Dayton schools for several years okay. on um, a program there. So we lived in Dayton, and, um, and then we 
So anyhow, that's how that got going. Okay, so then how did you get from there into the vineyard management? Business? So I, a year later, after we got married, went back to Switzerland and, and uh, formally trained in Vadensville for six weeks at the research station in Vadensville okay. under Werner Koblet. So we studied clones and disease control and canopy management um, and then came back and worked for Irie for nine years as the vineyard manager and the cellar manager there. And then you just continuing education and I have a degree in environmental science and I'd worked for farms for 10 years. So, so that's sort of the foundation of, of everything, so. Okay. So tell us about vine tenders then, starting a company. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm especially, especially curious as you're going through it, how exactly the logistics work of being a vineyard manager. So, so at that time, there was, there was very few of us that actually did vineyard management. And so um, I worked with Dave for as just solely with that company. And then um, I started a nursery the same, in 81, where we grew, um, we propagated grapevines. Um, I rented some land and, and um, we grew, took cuttings off of different plants and clones basically and grew them and propagated them. And that was, we started a nursery basically and didn't really manage other vineyards. But people, there was this tremendous need for information and, and to, to, uh, to learn about the different plant material. There was a lot of new clones coming into the mm -hmm. United States and into Oregon. And so that kind of became my specialty. And uh, we grew that, the, the nursery, for, for several years. Um, and then there's more and more people coming all the time and asking a lot of questions. And so um, it just grew into farming for other people and continuing to grow the nursery. And then in 1990, um, phylloxera was found in, mm -hmm. in the region here. And we had to make a decision to uh, begin to graft vines or, or what we're going to do and we decided not to start our own grafting operation. Um, we'd sort of played around with it. I had a grafting machine and all that sort of stuff and I'd visited some nurseries in Europe and seen how to do it and talked to people about how to do it. Um, but it really seemed to be something that you really had to specialize into and it took a tremendous amount of capital. Um, so. I did some work for a, a, a biotechnology company uh, that was from Oregon uh, that was working on a great project um, for real disease-free, virus-free material and grafting in greenhouses and green grafting. It's called uh, Epitope, was a parent company and it was called Vinifera here in Oregon and they moved to California. And so I fooled around with them for a few years and then they, that sold out. And then um, as we started to plant, uh, more grafted vineyards. I had relationships with different California companies where we would take Oregon wood to California down there and get it grafted and bring it back. And then I ended up working with uh, Duarte Nursery in mm -hmm. Houston, California. And then they ended up hiring me to work for them. So um, I worked for them since 1998 for Oregon and Washington. Um, they have this tremendous facility. It's huge. It's, uh, and, you, and, and it's so much more um, complicated than what we could have ever done. We would have got killed by all those companies that are in California. So that in terms of the virus control and the, the cleanliness requirements that are, uh, that are needed by the industry now, um, 
one small person like myself would never have been able to do it. So we, had, we have so much better products through having a large company like that. Um, we have, so it worked out great. So we still are in that business um, and then we still farm for others and it's, it's, it's really important in development to have a good source of material and control of the material. It's a phone call away, it's 10 hours away in a truck um, to bring that in. So that's always been a part of our business um, and an important part and parallel to the farming and the developing and um, you know, it's just, it's, I don't know, it never stops, it doesn't <laughs> seem. So. A, lot of different, a lot of different branches of the same. There basic. are, and it's been constant, the need to try to, when you, when you um, go look at a new piece of property and try to interpret what's going to happen there and what's the best way to proceed. And uh, I mean, I just was, I've been doing it in the last couple of weeks. There's some new properties that are needing, people want to develop. And how do you do it? You know, how do you, what's the best way to go? What do they want? Um, how fast and, and what is, what's, what do you, how, you know, is, is the soil right? Mm -hmm. um, so we just try to do that. So over time, over 30 years, you learn that, or 35, you figure it out and don't do it right there. That's a mud hole, you know, you can't go in there or, so do you find yourself dealing mostly with people who are new to the industry, who you are kind of like a guru to, or do you find people who are I don't really just needing know about your advice? Guru, I don't want the guru term. I think that's not really the right approach. It's just like, do you, people seek sound advice, and you, it's it's a tremendous investment for people, and and it I, it you need it needs to be done right, mm -hmm. and it needs because it's a serious investment. Um, not only for the land, but for, it's a serious long-term investment. And when it's wrong, it's really wrong. And when it's right, it's really right. So you wanna do it right, you know? So when it comes to managing someone else's vineyard, how mm -hmm. do you go about handling that logistically? Do you have a set crew of people who work for you? Yeah, we do. We have permanent people that work for our company, and then we have contract crews and uh, that work with us. We have relationships with different contract crews that we and we've had them for several years, and so we have little groups of people that go around and work. And so they're not necessarily tied to a specific vineyard. They go where they're needed. Usually not. Usually not. Okay. And that's been the way it's for many years. So. Um. Changing tax a little bit here, uh, I know uh, from reading about you that your sons are also involved in your business yep. now. So what's it like working with your family on a business like this? It's complicated. <laughs> so all three boys went to school and um, I didn't really, uh, we, my wife and I, she, we, my wife works, we work together. Um, she works more in the business side or in their office and stuff. Um, when, when they went away uh, to school, we didn't really say you go and then you come back. They just sort of filtered back in on their own. And um, our oldest son, Joseph, uh, went to California, went to New Zealand, spent some time in Europe and in and, uh, and, and vineyard um, operations um, and then came back. So he works full time in our vineyard operation and then works some in the winery and we have a winery in Carlton, a small winery. Um, it's a little bit of everything. And then um, John works, went to school and then 
came back and he kind of works more in the business, but he can drive a tractor if we gotta drive a tractor, you know, or truck or whatever. Um, so, but he works more in the business side. Mm -hmm. um, and then our youngest son, Dave, went to school out of state. He went to Montana and then he went to, to Idaho and he's in um, machine operations, uh, diesel technology. And which is, so now he came back and, and uh, he has his own machine business, machine up uh, repair and mm -hmm. um, works with the German machinery company selling vine vineyard equipment. And so he, um, he's got that thing going on his own. Uh, but then he comes back during harvest. We have a, a machine harvesting company for great harvesting machinery. Mm -hmm. So we've been working on that for several years. Um, and now that's grown a little bit and so um, Dave comes back during harvest and we all kind of concentrate on keeping those machine harvesters going for the month of harvest. So I, I more or less run the hand crews and they run the machines so it's kind of a... So if you, if you had planned it you almost couldn't have done better than having a son kind of in each different aspect of the business. Uh, yeah, I suppose you could <laughs> say that. That's where it's at right now. Who knows where it's going to go but yeah, it's, it's worked out so far. It's complicated, but it's working right at the moment. So what made you decide to start to actually have a winery and start making your own wine? Um, that, we, and we started making wine in 2000. We had a, we manage a vineyard, Guadalupe Vineyard. We started in, in the late 80s with that, with uh, Jim and Kathleen, Bouv Jim Stonebridge and Kathleen Bouvet, and that's a nice vineyard out by the monastery in, in Lafayette. And it's, it, it was, uh, it's a vineyard only, not a winery. So it's sold to different, different uh, wineries. And so there was a parcel that each block of the vineyard was getting sold. And there was this little strip in the back that I was kind of had my eye on. It was a nice looking part of the vineyard. And I just kind of failed to sell it to somebody else. And I thought there's a little acre, 1.3 and acres. And I thought, ah, you know, if I can just keep my mouth shut, maybe it doesn't sell. <laughs> and then uh, it, it was time and to, to, it was coming into production and that was when the laws were evolving where you could do custom crush and you could get a grower sales privilege license and have the, um, an opportunity to have wine made and not have a winery and that mm. was a real big deal whether that was going to happen or not so as that opportunity um, came about this block of grapes to make wine from came about. I had worked in a winery for seven years at Irie and was familiar with the process, and so uh, we that we had that opportunity, and so we took it. We made 50 cases of wine one year, and then 100 the next year, and and then a couple hundred, and then it was like, oh, we're you know we can grow grapes, and then we can get the wine made, and and then it was like selling it was sort of an issue. <laughs> so then we made a little bit of Pinot Gris in 2001. So, um, and then it just sort of grew and grew. And we knew that if we started it and then we wanted to stop, it would take several years to sort of kill the project. And so, um, you know, because you'd have inventory, you'd have sure. to get rid of it. Sure. You wouldn't want to tell anybody you're not doing it anymore while you're trying to sell what you have. So that would take a few years. And so um, it's still growing um, and it's still, we still have inventory that we would have to sell if we stopped, but it's been interesting. It's, it's been, it's very complicated. We can grow 
grapes, we can make wine, and the sales part is very complicated. And, and being small and, and self-funded is difficult, and it's a, it's a very difficult, it's a difficult business mm -hmm. to try to do it and be profitable. So we bought a building. I mean, so we've done it now. It's completely crazy. We bought a building in <laughs> 2001, the old post office in Carleton, and um, it's everything's micro. You know, we everything's tiny. Um, so we're not big, huge winery. So then we planted our own vineyards so that at home we have our own vineyards and we sell some grapes. We sell grapes to Sokol Blosser and um, some other wineries. and. So we, so we save a little bit of our own fruit and sell some of our own fruit and do a little bit of everything. So, so um, we do a little bit of everything in every kind of aspect of the <laughs> wine business. So. I was just, just going to ask, of the different, since you basically do a little bit of everything, what is your, what's your favorite part of, what's your favorite part of the wine business? I love the nursery business and I, I love growing grapes. I, I enjoy the winemaking part, but um, the, I like, growing grapes. I love the nursery business. I think that's just fascinating. It's never ending in how complicated it is. It's, it's very challenging. It's not that I dislike any other part of it, but I mean, it's <laughs> sure. just, uh, it's very challenging. It's always something going on, some new virus or some d disease that comes up, which is trouble, but you got to find your way out and um, work, work out the issue. It's always been here. It's always, always been a part of that. And, and building vineyards is, is fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. Okay. Um, all, along those same lines, you have a pretty unique perspective on the Oregon wine industry, especially the Willamette Valley. You've touched yeah. you, a, a bunch of different vineyards, a bunch of yeah. different aspects of it. What's your thought on like the region's identity in the wine industry, Oregon, Willamette Valley? We're still, we, we were, you have to leave to get a perspective. You have to go, for instance, go to Cal. We, we think a lot of ourselves, you know? And so if you go, um, so when I, when I came here, there was 600 acres of grapes in Yamhill County, I think. And I think there's seven or 8,000 acres here now. And so we're still tiny. Um, I think, um, the state of Oregon has 25,000 acres or something. And so that's, that's like Sonoma County. <laughs> and so if we have, if we were still tiny, I mean, if, if we were uh, at the Gallo processing line, that would be like, well, Oregon's coming on Saturday afternoon. We have to get ready, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, and it's gone. And so I, I know that everybody gets psyched up about everything, but it's still, it's so small <laughs> in the big picture of, you know, the hundreds of thousands of acres that are in, 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 you know, or millions that are in Europe. Um, so we have to really, that's, that's why we have to work so hard to sell wine is that we're, we're just a little drop in the bucket in, in the wine world. Mm. We still have all the day-to-day -day operations and, and, and things like that, but we have to sell this stuff and it's, it's hard. What do you feel the, what, from what you understand, uh, given that you're inside it, what do you feel the outside perspective is? How do you feel the rest of the I world? I think we have us? a good, we have a, a good reputation for some wines. Our, our wines are good and, and they're getting better. 
And, and when you go to, uh, I'm not going to name other states where you go that are emerging, and you go, oh, yeah, that's how our wine was like in the <laughs> 80s, you know, because we made some quality leaps. We made a couple of them. And, and um, you know, I was out of state a few years ago, and I go, oh, yeah, that's how uh, our wines were like like the mid-80s. And then we made, a, we made a little jump. And then uh, because there was energy put into everybody achieving certain levels of, mm -hmm. of wine quality before they put labels on it and put it in the store. You see, so if, if I made poor wine and you made good wine, our bottles were side by side <laughs> in the store, but they'd grab mine and go, boy, that Oregon wine was not very nice. And so that's a problem for all Oregon wine producers, sure. not just, they don't associate Oregon with my brain. It was, they branded all Oregon wine producers with poor quality. And so the Oregon State Extension, Barney Watson mm -hmm. basically, said we need to put extension efforts into improving winery sanitation, um, winery biology, and they really put an effort into that. That changed Oregon wine quality. And so then people started doing a lot better job regionally, and that had a big impact. And then this is kind of where the nursery business comes in, is that we had some new clones came available in the late, um, well, it was early 90s, really before they came on the market, excuse me. Late, late 90s, really, you could, there's a big impact was made by some clonal material that really changed what our, our, our wines are. Rootstocks had a big impact. They made grapes ripen a week or 10 days earlier. Mm. So. And in cold years, that's a big deal, but it improved wine quality. Then the clones came, they improved wine quality. So we've made these sort of leaps from one thing or another. Better, bio, better biology, better housekeeping, new clones, rootstocks, all these things have gone, kind of come together to um, improve wine quality. Excellent. So. Okay, well, I'm, that's my part of the interview. I'm gonna turn you over to Camille now. My name is Camille Weber. I'm yep. the Dick Erath intern, and I'm here with Joel again. Um, and I'm gonna kind of backtrack um, to where Rich was at earlier in the interview. Um, and I, you really emphasized your relationships with the Corys and the Lutz, um, but the name that we haven't heard a lot of um, is Warner Coblet. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about Warner Kublet and maybe how he influenced you and your interest in wine. Like we've heard from Dick E. Rath, that he was a really big name in um, yeah. the world of viticulture and research and things like that. Yeah. Um, but to Oregonians, we really haven't heard much about him. Yeah, so, so. he's a, so he was a researcher. He studied at Davis and then, um, I'm trying to think when he did his main, his big claim to fame was some research he did that was in the late 70s of identifying the movement of carbohydrates in plants. So this is his claim to fame. And so he put, um, he, so there's leaves on a plant, right, on a grapevine, and he put um, radioactive carbon in them, okay? So in this leaf, and then he put it in this leaf, and he, so then you could um, take the shoot off of the plant and um, 
take an x-ray of it. And then you could follow, he's a physiologist, plant physiologist. So then you could um, follow the carbon in the plant, in the, leaf, in the shoot. What, where did it go? Because then you could follow the, it, had, it was radioactive. So did it go up? Did it go down? Did it go into the grape? Mm -hmm. Okay, this is how he got famous. Okay, so he found that at, depending on the length of the shoot or the size of the leaf, it would go, some of the carbon, some of the carbon would go, the, the photosynthate, the, the, ac, the sugar that's generated in the leaf would go up to the shoot tip, some would go into the grape, some would go down into the storage into the plant. This is big stuff, this is new, okay? And so that's, that's basically what he discovered is what is happening in the internal mechanism of the plant, of the grapevine. And then how you can manipulate that by labeling the flow of carbohydrates in the vine. No one knew how to do, no one knew what this process was and no one knew how you could manipulate that. So he did his studies over a three or four year period. And also that it comes back for three years. So that today the sun is shining and this carbon is going into this leaf and some of it's going into the permanent structure of the vine, into the trunks and into the roots and it's gonna come back. Carbon stored today will come back next year and the year after that in 20, 16 and 2017, little pieces of radioactive carbon will come back into the grapevine. We would see it. We would take a shoot in 2016 and put x-ray it and it will have radioactivity in it. And in 2017, it will still be there. And we see that when we farm a vineyard. That's if it's a sick vineyard, um, it takes three years to fix a vineyard. And so, or stress uh, in a vineyard is something that takes three years to, to figure out. So that's how he became um, uh, a, a world-renowned um, uh, physiologist. So, and then he became the director of the research station in Vadensville. So he rose to the, he's a great guy, he's a, and he's more of a, um, a person who can um, take um, very complicated subjects and, and go out and talk to growers. And that was his job in Switzerland, was to take this complicated research that was going on in, in the research station and then go out and, and give it to the growers in northern Switzerland. So he, he actually lectured all over the world about different subjects, but his, his, his personal study was, was carbohydrate research. So that's, so anyhow. I was fortunate enough to be, um, he agreed to um, set up this little study for me when I went there in 1981 to, you'll go with two weeks with, with uh, this guy who was, a, his name was Werner Siegfried and he was the disease specialist and so we traveled around and did all these disease control trials in Switzerland for botrytis and downy mildew and, and um, powdery mildew. Um, we did that for a couple weeks and then I went to an insect guy and we went around and did these in insect control trials and then I spent some time with uh, uh, the 
head guy from Bayer Technologies on sprayer designs, and then I spent time with a guy on clonal research, and I spent some time in the cellar with the cellar research guy on yeasts, which was really kind of crazy, but anyhow, so I basically crammed a, a year's worth of studying in, in, in about six weeks in the, in the research station. So it was, for me, it was, I would never have access to that. So, and his, okay, so then a few years later, uh, three years later, his son came and lived with, lived with us for a year. Um, and we've just maintained a relationship over the last year. He's still alive, he's 83. So we've been, we've been there a few times. His son lived with us. Um, and then he l led tour groups. Um, Swiss wine growers, you know, like they have tour groups go around farmers and stuff. So he came, they would go to Canada, the wine growers in, area in Canada, or to Napa Valley. Um, and then if they came here, then I would organize the tours here. We would go see three or four different vineyards or whatever with, um, I don't know, 30 or 40 wine growers from Switzerland. And they'd stay here in McMinnville and we'd, we'd go visit vineyards, busload of Swiss guys. And so I got to meet Swiss wine guys from all over the place. So if I ever go over there, then I get to go see those guys. Because <laughs> I did it, I don't know, four or five times over during the 80s and the 90s. We did that a few times. Um, so anyhow, I've known him for many years. He's a wonderful man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's done a lot. He's reti he retired quite a few years ago. So yeah. I've been to the research station. If I go, it's they shut it down and now moved it to southern Switzerland. So um, we still go there, um, walk around. Um, he's a superman. Yeah, he seems like it. Yeah. yeah. So and so I met um, him and I met uh, through him. I got to be friends with Mark Cleaver. He's a retired, um, he's a professor. He was a, with a professor at UC Davis. Have you met him? So he lives, he lives in Oregon. He lives in near Eugene. He retired and moved to Oregon. So Cleaver was at Davis when Colbert was there. He's probably about the same age, 80, 81 or something. So um, they were buddies because Cleaver's wife is German, and so they could speak German together, his wife and, 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 and Colbert's wife. Um, and Cleaver's down there in Eugene, or just outside of Eugene, Vanita or something. So I see him a couple times a year. So I got to meet him. He's, he, wrote, he wrote the Bible, basically, is Viticulture, Winkler, Cleaver, and I uh, forgot the other author. It's like the original... Um, book of viticulture that was written in in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s, major, major, the viticulture um, textbook for studying viticulture at UC Davis. So he's, he's become a friend awesome. through Werner. So yeah, great guys. Yeah, those are definitely guys that we're going to try Pardon to reach me? out for. Those guys are definitely people we're going to try to reach yeah, out Yeah, no, but I'm just to. saying, so through that, it's just one person leads to another and then you know, so there was a client, there was a symposium in Eugene in 1984. It was uh, the, the, the Cool Climate Symposium. It was the first time they had it. So there was, a, there was a, a seminar there on hedging, which is when you trim the sides and the tops of a grapevine. So there was, Cleaver was there, Koblet was there, 
Koblet's a big hedger. He's an advocate of hedging because it moves, it changes the way the carbohydrates move in the vine. And Cleaver is anti-hedging because he thinks it changes, it does it to a negative way. And then you had Richard Smart, and Richard Smart is the one that, he's, a, he's English, and he wrote the book Sunlight and Divine. He trained under Nelson Shawless, who was there. So, so you had Cleaver from Davis, Colbert from Switzerland, Richard Smart from England, who trained under Nelson Shawless at Cornell, Shawless was there, and then Carboneau. Carboneau was from France, and he was the other canopy guy. He had the top five guys in the world in one room, yelling at each other from all, <laughs> all the different sides. It's okay. cool. Yeah, yeah, that must have been great to watch. So you're sitting there and you go, what am I supposed to think if none of these guys can get along? So. Well, that's the beauty of yeah, it was it was cool. Argument. It was great. I'll, I'll never forget that. Uh, so. Okay, so with your kind of insight in the wine industry, where do you think the Oregon wine industry is heading? What does the future of Oregon wine look like? Wine or grape growing? Both. Hmm. So, uh, now I'm just so we're growing. Thinking. That's a fact. <laughs> every 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 region is growing right now in in a big way, um, and I think positively. I think that everybody, um, you know, because I. I just returned from northeastern part of the state, and I do a fair amount of business in southern Oregon. Everybody's really on a positive kick right now in terms of growth. Um, they're they're planting good vineyards. There's a lot of good work going on everywhere. I don't, I mean, you see a shotgun effort every once in a while, and you go, you know, what's that about? But, and that I guess that's always going to happen. But um, there's a lot of good work in farming right now. There's a lot of good work. Um, I think that, that we face some real serious challenges, both in uh, our, our labor needs and how we are going to address uh, the future um, of, of farm work um, in numbers of people that we're able to employ and, and then the costs of that. How are, how are we going to manage that economically? So we're going to have to mechanize whether, so there's sort of a resistance to that, that we're going to lose the, the, um, the sort of ambiance or the, the, there's a resistance to this, this craftiness that we have. We're supposed to be out there hunched over these vines and, and, and doing that. But I, so, um, it's just the way it's going to be. I mean, if you go to Europe, they have really cool machines that do a lot of the work that we do by hand, and we, we are going to have to adapt that way. Um, the, the machines are not very, they're not cheap either, but it's that the people are not going to be here. We've had, um, we've had uh, a luxury of a lot of people at a very reasonable cost. And so, um, the people aren't going to be here anymore. They're just not going to be here for any reason that you could name. I mean, the, the you know, in not not. Just, I mean, 
the birth rate in Mexico 25 years ago was people had five to seven children and now they have two. So they're just flat not there. You know, when you know, three of the kids don't have to leave home to because there's not enough work or not enough food or not enough whatever. So they're not there. They're not, they're physically not there. And so the economy of Latin America is better than it was. And, and whether, you know, whether the politics of the United States are whatever they are, whether we want them or not, or whether we're going to allow them to come, they're, they're, a lot of them are physically not there to come in the first place. So we need to find other ways. And we need to look at the architecture of our vineyard so that it's adapted to take the machines and utilize machines. And so we have to be aware of, conscious of that. So, because if you build a vineyard that won't accommodate a machine, and that's how the farming moves towards, then you have a, a fundamental architectural problem. So we have to really kind of think about that as we move forward. So that's, that's a challenge. Wine-wise, um, We have to be able to produce wines that are profitable and in, in the quality. And I think that goes back to viticulture. If we can, that's where it's complicated. That's where I see it as a, as a small grower is how can we accommodate. The, it's, it's easy to make wine, really. I mean, it, and do a good job. And, but you have to do it and be able to sell it profitably. And so um, that is difficult. That's difficult to be able, because it's a very, very competitive global market. And when people reach to the shelf, they don't go, oh, that guy's a nice guy. I'm going to buy his wine. They go, oh, that's only, you know, $8.99. It's only eight bucks or whatever. And we're not in that game, you know. And so that not all wine sells for $35. You know, it just doesn't. And so that's a big reality check for us. So. Um, this, this movement of large companies coming to Oregon, I think, is overall is positive. People are kind of freaked out about it, but I think that it's a, it's a good thing for us in general. They bring a lot of, of, of strength in the marketplace and brand, brand recognition to us, that, to Oregon, as a region that, that we talked about earlier, that, that a, even a, a group of small growers, we can't generate that in our lifetime and they just kaboom you know a big giant company will say we're going to Oregon we're going to make it happen they go uh-huh so little guys can trot behind and we just got to keep up you know we just got to be able to keep up so overall I think things are very positive very positive so what was one of the most important things that you've learned so far uh, with your experience in the wine industry, or if there's anything that you maybe wanted to over, um. do over. <laughs> I get a do over. I get a do over. I mean, if you want a do over, <laughs> I should have made wine earlier, probably. I should have started doing that earlier. I think. Maybe. I'm not sure <laughs> it's about that. It's hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe I should have. I should have. Yeah, maybe. 
What makes you say that? We'd be further ahead. We'd be in, in the sales part of it. Yeah, because that seems to be the most challenging. Yeah, we, of it. yeah, it is. And, and so we kind of, we've missed a couple of waves, I think. Right. We're doing other things. We were busy doing other things and didn't pay attention to that. And maybe we missed a couple waves that we could have ridden. I was like, oops, you know, but I mean, I don't know that. I didn't know that at the time. But we were busy, you know, we were working, we were raising kids and not paying attention to that. So we missed the 90s, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> so, but we were busy doing other things. So yeah. you don't, you don't get that back. So it's okay. <laughs> it's fine. And there are other things. There's other important. things, yeah. 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 So, okay. no regrets. <laughs> well, good. You don't get a regret anyhow, so it's okay. <laughs> um, well, is there anything that I've forgotten or that you'd no, like to uh -uh. share with us? Uh-uh. All right, well, so, I think that'll yeah. conclude oh, it. Hold on. Sorry, I'm going to jump in. Oh, okay. Um, given your love of the grape and your experience in planting, I'm wondering what your thoughts are with the other varietals out there that could potentially do really well here in Oregon. Which part of Oregon? You mean any part or? I would love to hear all of Oregon since you've had some experience. They, they're just, there's just, Oregon is, as a whole, is really lucky because they, they there's just places where, um, they can grow you know almost anything i mean spanish varieties and you know rock solid cabernet and syrah and stuff in the northeast corner and um you know great riesling uh in the gorge and things like that and and southern oregon has a, a, you know an identity with all kinds of varieties and so uh, i get bombarded all the time with people asking me about bizarre varieties that I've never heard of. I carry, I actually put Jancis Robinson's book on my phone because people ask me so many questions all the time about varieties that, you know, I go, no, it's not even in the United States yet. You know, we gotta <laughs> calm down or, you know, or, or, you know, some strange variety that's, that's not released from Davis yet. So there's, um, people are trying to find another red variety that we can grow in the Willamette Valley. Mm -hmm. They're still searching for that and um, ones that's consistent. Mm -hmm. I think we'll, f that, and that will be something that'll happen in the future in a small way. I mean, will we find something that will compete with Pinot Noir? I don't think so. I think we've got our, our home there and we need to be satisfied. But something that will, um, there are millions of varieties, not millions, but I mean, there are thousands of varieties of grape varieties grown in, in Italy that are just all over the place. We would need some of those for fun, you know, just for fun. To, you grow up, you know, that only grows up in this little part of the valley, and then you go, and that's what the fun part is. You go, oh, I've never had that. Get, you know, and you do, and you, it's, it's beautiful, and you go, ah, we should have some, you know? So that's the fun part. That's really a fun part. So if you go to a restaurant and they've imported some bizarre variety and you can have it, you should try it. You know, <laughs> you know, uh, that's, that's, that's a lot of fun. Okay. Yeah, so and we can grow, I can't even count the, I cannot count the varieties we can grow in the state. Mm -hmm. And people do a great job. You know, they do a great job. 
And so finding something different, finding something uh, new, uh, you know, the Italian varieties or very challenging, the Rhone varieties, all those, it's, it's, it's crazy. And then there's different ways to make them, you know? Right. You know, white, you know, rosés, and oh, that's a rosé, oh, okay. And <laughs> so it's like, it's a lot of things. And they're, and they're legit. I mean, it's not like some people making them that are not serious, legitimate ways that the wines are made, so. That's what's amazing. And then there is, that's amazing. Well, thank you for letting me jump in, Camille. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> well, thank you very yeah. much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews. Over